something always gets lost in translation. You probably noticed that if you've read directions lately for putting something together. Israel apparently missed something in the ten words about other gods and making idols. The primary purpose of God in the Exodus was that God be made known. The calf is in the opposite direction of knowing God. Sinai was a giant step forward in the revelation of God, but Sinai, the giving of the law, did not answer the problem of sin. The reality of sin begs the question, how can a holy God live among a sinful people? Exodus uh, 32 through 34 gives us yet a further revelation of the nature and character of God. The resolution of the text comes in chapter 34, verses 6 and 7 that we read. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and so on. God will dwell among a stiff-necked people By forgiving their sin. So how can a holy God live among a sinful people? He will forgive their sin. Now this brings up a whole other issue. And that is, how can a holy God forgive sin? How will he live among them? He'll forgive their sin. But then, if he's holy, how can he forgive sin? Well, that's a question not directly answered In this text, it will take a new covenant to answer that question. And the writer understands that. And that's why the Pentateuch is prophetic in its very nature. It bids us, by the words that we read, to look to another. It bids us and begs us to look to Christ. So chapters 32 through 34 give the occasion then for a fuller revelation of God. The purpose of God in the Exodus all along is that he be made known. This passage reveals to us something that we haven't seen before in the Exodus and that God is merciful and forgiving. He's merciful and forgiving. And so as we think about that, I want us to uh, look at this text. We're going to look at, at, uh, at Israel's sin and Moses' intercession and then Israel's repentance and restoration. So number one, Israel's sin. Israel's sin. Our sin is an issue with, with which God must deal. Now Israel's sin in making the golden calf that we see in chapter 32 Um, in the first part of that chapter, their sin is the setting for this further revelation of the nature and character of God. Sin is a thing. It is such a thing, and God must deal with it because it is contrary to his nature and his character. Sin is high treason against God. So far in Exodus, Israel's sin has not been dealt with. In fact, it's not even been a topic in the book of Exodus. 
it is shockingly, strangely absent. That is, until now. Prior to Exodus 32 through 34, sin has been mentioned ten times in the book of Exodus, none of which is in relation to Israel's personal sin. In chapters 32 through 34, sin is mentioned 11 times, more than in all the rest of Exodus combined. And not only is it mentioned 11 times, but three different words are used to describe it. The words iniquity, transgression, and sin. All of the ramifications of this thing that is contrary to the nature and character of God. From the very bent of our hearts, our tendency toward sin, uh, to our willful rebellion against God to missing the mark and coming short of the glory of God. Now, after the giving of the ten words and the rules contained in chapters 20 through 23 in Exodus, Moses was called up to the mountain to receive uh, the tablets uh, from God in the glory cloud. And he was there for 40 days and 40 nights, and uh, that was a bit too long for the Israelites down in the valley below. And so the text says in chapter 32, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. So while Moses is on the mountain, the golden calf event occurs in the valley. We left, we left Moses there at the end of chapter 24. Here we come to this text. And the Israelites on that very day got up in the morning and gathered manna, rained down from heaven, and then made a calf to worship. Confronting Israel with their sin was inevitable. Now they not only made the calf, but they made the calf and attributed to it their exodus from Egypt. Notice in chapter 32, verse 4, And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now the Israelites came out of Egypt and they looked like pagans. They dressed like pagans and they acted like pagans. And so they took their gold and their ornaments that they had to use in their idolatry and they gave them to Aaron and Aaron made a calf. It wasn't like all of a sudden, when we get to Exodus 32, that Israel becomes idolatrous. They were idolaters at heart. Their sin is not so much because they wanted a God they could see. If that was the case, all they had to do was look on the mountain. The glory cloud was resting on the mountain and, and Moses was in the glory cloud. 
No, they were not interested in a God that they could see. They wanted autonomy. They wanted a God that they could control. This is rebellion, pure and simple. You can hear their rebellion in chapter 32, verse 1, when they said, "Up, oh, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so the language of the text here in uh, chapter 32 with them attributing uh, the calf to bringing them out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage, is very similar to the prologue to the Ten Commandments. If you remember, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, God identified himself as, I am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So that's how the Ten Commandments are introduced. The implication is, if he is the God who's made himself known and brought us out of the land of Egypt, well, obey him, do what he says. You will have no other gods before me. Israel attributed what God had done to the gods represented by the calf. In the second part of verse 4, chapter 32, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The implication is the same. So obey them. If the situation could not have gotten worse, Aaron made it worse by proclaiming a feast to the Lord in verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation, tomorrow we shall have a feast to Yahweh. It's as if Aaron is saying, no, this is Yahweh. This is the God of Israel. So they made burnt offerings and peace offerings to the calf. You know, the only other time burnt offerings and peace offerings are actually made in the book of Exodus is in chapter 24, verses 4 through 8, when the covenant was ratified after the giving of the ten words and the rules on Mount Sinai. So here they are sacrificing the offerings that were to go to the Lord to a calf. Now, the only assessment of sin that matters uh, is not your neighbor's or your own, but God's. The Lord gave Moses his assessment in verse 7 of chapter 32, and he said to Moses, go down for your people. Do you like the little switch there? God saying, your people, Moses, not mine. Whom you brought out of the land of Egypt. God is handing his people over. He's saying, Moses, they're your people. So God's assessment of it is, in verse 7, your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. In verse 8, the second part of the verse, they have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You can excuse sin. You can find people who will applaud you for sin and affirm you in sin. You can call sin good and good sin 
In the end, whatever you call it, however you think of it, it does not change it at all. In fact, if you're going to hold to sin, you have to create a different God than the God of the Bible in order to rationalize it. Because the God of the Bible is very clear about how he feels about these things. Now, the NARLs, or the National Abortion and Reproduction Rights Action League, their motto at a recent campaign rally was demand justice. Seriously? For whom? What about the potential of that child? That's a question I want to ask. I often say God has sent us the cure for cancer a million times. We just keep aborting it. That, however, is the sin of the world, right? I mean, it's really easy to look at the other guys and talk about their sin. But what about the sin of the Christian? God is the God who deals with all of our sin. In this text, he deals with Israel's iniquity, their transgression, And their sin, that is, from the sinful action itself to the root causes of the heart. If you are a believer and you can't stop clicking the porn link, understand you have an underlying problem in your heart bigger than porn. And that demon has to go. Now, I could go on with the big sins. We could... We could list the big ones, all of the sexual sins. But those are the easy ones. Right? Just quit it. Those are easy. God's interested in more than that. He's interested in you at the core of your being. And so those big sins, where you are right now, brother or sister, may look like mountains to you as you drive toward those hills. However, they are moving and revealing things to you that you have not yet seen. And you may find in your heart that your core issue is a deep-seated anger or an unhealed wound or an insatiable envy or a prideful self-pity or self-exaltation that's driving you and pushing you into sin. You may find your life dominated by forces that you can't seem to escape. But I want to tell you, on authority of the Word of God, God is intent on freeing you from all those things. And He is going to do it because God deals with our sin Every one of them, no matter what they are. One of the most glorious texts in the Bible tells us that God will not be satisfied until the work he has started in us is completed in the day of Jesus Christ. So there's Israel's sin. And God will deal with sin. Secondly, there's Moses' intercession. Prayer will be shaped by our understanding of the nature and character of God. Prayer will be shaped by our understanding of the nature and character of God. 
This, uh, this group of chapters contains four rounds of intercession from Moses, and they arise out of what God said to Moses when God said in, in 32.7, these are your people, you brought them out of the land of Egypt. That is, Moses' intercession uh, came when he heard of God's intention to reject his people. And not only that, he said to Moses that I have seen this people in 32.9, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Now, when, God, when Moses heard that God was going to cast his people off and make a great nation out of him, Moses immediately interceded. Look at verse 11. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Moses saw what the Lord was going to do as an opportunity to intercede. Now, the sense of what God told Moses in 32.10, in verse 10, is, Moses, the only thing standing between me and consuming them and making you Abraham number two is you. Moses interceded because he understood something about the nature and character of God. And so he pleaded two things. He pleaded the reputation of God among the nations and his promise to Abraham. So I want you to see how God focused Abraham's first round of intercession is. His first round of intercession is focused in the promise and the purpose of God in the world. God's purpose in Exodus, remember, it colors everything about the book, was to make himself known. And so Moses reminds the Lord of his purpose by grabbing the language of Exodus nine sixteen when he tells him in verse 11, you brought them out with great power. When you look at Exodus 9.16, God had told Moses to go to Pharaoh and say to him, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. What is at stake in God consuming Israel is the global reputation of God. So verse 12, Moses said, why should the Egyptians say... With evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? So Moses first grabs the reputation of God, his global reputation, his desire to be made known. And then he runs to the promise of Abraham in verse 13, the Abrahamic covenant. And he says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel? Your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Moses says 
starting over with me contradicts the promise that you made to Abraham. You swore with an oath that you would multiply his seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the sea. He's saying, God, you by oath have bound yourself to them. So you see, on the basis of Moses' first petition, he's pleading with the Lord for the Lord. God relents in verse 14 because consuming Israel is not consistent with his purpose and will. So you see how understanding God's purpose and his promise impacts your prayer. Now there's a second round of petition that we can see uh, starting in verse 31 of chapter 32. And it's going to show us, show us that our prayers must be corrected by the nature and character of God. Moses goes down the mountain. He broke the tablets of stone. He destroyed the calf. He confronted Aaron. He led the Levites in terminating the guilty. And then the next day, he confronted Israel with their sin in chapter 32, verse 30. The text says, the next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses goes up to the Lord, and the first thing he does is he confesses their sin in verse 31. Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. Then he pleads for their forgiveness in verse 32. But now, if you will forgive their sin, and notice he didn't even finish his sentence, he just broke it off. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book. Moses is asking God just to take away their sin. Unburden them of this offense and the punishment for it. And the basis he offers for removing their sin is, if you won't forgive them, then blot me out of your book. He seems to be offering himself as an atonement for the sin of Israel. So something is missing in his understanding of sin, holiness, atonement and the nature and character of God. Moses is praying and he's, he's putting all this together. God can't just overlook sin. Atonement must, must be made and justice must be satisfied, but Moses can do none of those. Now the Lord graciously denied Moses' request. Look in verse 33, but the Lord said to Moses... Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Moses was in no position to offer himself as an atonement for sin. God in his kindness will not give his children a stone when they ask for bread. Now I've heard a lot of people say in my life, be careful 
what you pray for. And I get it, I understand, but I think it's a mischaracterization of God. I think rather pray. But understand that prayer is a schoolhouse, not a lottery. It's where you're going to learn about the nature and the character of God. And the more we learn about God, the more effective our prayers are going to be. Now that gives way to the third petition. And that is, uh, in uh, chapter 33, verses 12 through 18, we can uh, see the third uh, petition. And it reminds us that we should persevere in prayer until you lay hold of God's willingness. So the second petition, God denied, unanswered prayer is no reason to quit praying, but rather it is a reason to persevere in prayer until you lay hold of the willingness of God. Now the central issue in this third petition is the Lord's presence with Israel. In the early part of chapter 33, the Lord tells Moses, for example, in 33 verse 1, depart and go up to the land. And then he says in verse 2, I'll send an angel before you. And then in verse 3, he says, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, interestingly, in verses 7 through 11, we have this interlude that tells us that Moses had been meeting with God outside the camp in a tent. God's not coming in the middle of the people, so Moses pitches a tent outside the camp, and he would go in the tent. When he would go in the tent, the glory of God would come and stand outside the tent. And that, tells, that text tells us in verse 11 that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Now I take the third petition that Moses is going to offer to the Lord to be a view into that conversation that's taking place between the Lord and Moses at the tent. So Moses starts his third petition by expressing his concern about who the Lord will send with him. Look in chapter 33, verse 12. See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moses is pleading for the Lord's presence. Remember, the big issue in the third petition is the presence of the Lord. And so Moses is pleading for his presence, and then on the basis of grace that God had shown to Moses, Moses asked for yet more grace. So Moses says, again in verse 12, you have said, I know you by name, you have also found favor in my sight, verse 13, now therefore if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways that I may know you in order that I might find favor in your sight. God, you have been gracious, give me more grace and show me your ways. Now why is Moses praying about knowing the ways of God? Apparently, because in the second intercession, when God turned him down, Moses realized, I'm at a deficit here in knowing who this God is. So this raises the question, 
What is God's willingness concerning Israel? That's the real question. What is God willing to do? So Moses adds to his intercession in the very last part of verse 13, consider too that this nation is your people. Now what's interesting about this um, request is that the only other time that particular word for nation is used of Israel in the entire book of Exodus is in chapter 19, verse 6, when God said they would be a holy nation and a royal priesthood. What Moses is doing is laying hold of the word of God, and he's saying, unless Israel is your people, your purpose of having a holy people fails. God replies then in verse 14 My presence will go with you And I will give you rest And when he says I will give you rest The you is singular Moses understands it as God saying Moses I'm going to go with you But I'm not going to go with them and so Moses, please, in verse 15, if your presence will not go, now in the ESV translation it has go with me, and that's a phrase that's been historically added by translators. If you have an older version, a version of the text, it's in italics, which means it's added for clarity, but it brings obscurity. So what, what Moses says is if your presence will not go, do not bring us up. Moses understood this promise to be directed to him alone, and so he presses for the presence of God that God would go up. And so the foundation of Moses' petition is like the first. How will God be known? Notice verse 16. How will it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going up with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every people on the face of the earth? If God does not go with them, he will, be, uh, will not be known, and Israel will be just like every other nation. So this idea of distinction in Israel is the same as the concept of being a holy nation in chapter 19, verse 6. God appeals, or Moses appeals to God's missionary purpose for Israel and making them a people who are distinguished by His presence among the nations, completely devoted to Him in the world. So Moses lays hold of God's willingness in his third petition because the Lord says in verse 17, this very thing you have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. God's purpose demands God's presence with Israel. Now there's going to be a fourth petition that Moses is going to offer that helps us see that prayer is a marvelous gift of God's grace. The third petition began in verse 13 with Moses saying, show me your ways. And it ends in verse 18 with Moses saying, show me your glory. Now I don't think there's any difference between the two requests. The request begs the question, 
Had not Moses already seen the glory of the Lord? Moses' request probably arises from a tension he's feeling in his intercessory encounters with God. And that is, what has changed that suddenly God is willing to go with Israel? He's refused to forgive them in the second petition. What's changed to ensure that he's not going to consume them? So the question is, how can the Lord be present with a sinful people? And so in 33, 19 through 23, the Lord promises to answer Moses' request by making all of his goodness pass before Moses, and then he would proclaim his name to Moses. You see that played out when you get to chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord revealed aspects of his nature and character that Moses had not understood to this point. So the Lord passed before Moses and he proclaimed his name, the text says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the words of this text. Keeping steadfast love to the thousands. That is the thousands of generations. Not to just a thousand people, but to the thousands of generations out through the future. God keeps His steadfast love. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. It's interesting that when we read that text, we really get fixated on God visiting iniquity on the fathers to the third and fourth generations. And overlook that he said, I'm going to be merciful to thousands of generations. This text is meant to show us the overwhelming grace and kindness and mercy of God toward sinners. Now what Moses did in light of that revelation was the only thing Moses could do. Verse uh, 8 of chapter 34 tells us he bowed his head quickly to the earth and he said, If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and sin, and take us for your inheritance. And God responds to his petition in verse 10 by saying, Behold, I am making a covenant. Now wait a minute. Did Moses not ask God to forgive their sin in the second petition? Yes. But not on the basis of any knowledge of the nature and character of God. Moses and Israel had to realize that there was absolutely nothing they could do to atone for their sin. They couldn't mourn enough. They couldn't be remorseful enough. They couldn't punish themselves enough. The only thing that a sinful human can do before a holy God is just admit, I've sinned. When you stand before God, you realize you're called out. He knows everything about you. And you understand that atonement for your sin is something that only God can work out. And He works it out because it is in His nature to be gracious and merciful, and love steadfastly. So what Moses did 
different than in the second petition. Instead of saying just forget about their sin, Moses adopted God's assessment of Israel and he said in verse 9, they are a stiff-necked people. So pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your people. The only way that sinful people can be God's people is he has to forgive their sin. But then that raises the other issue that we raised at the beginning. How can a holy God forgive sin? I mean, if he just forgives sin, he's not holy. It'll take the best, the rest of the Bible to answer that question. But I'll give you the Cliff Notes version right now. The answer will be typified in the tabernacle. And it will be clearly revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who took on human flesh and lived a perfect life. And He offered Himself. The perfect life that He lived. The perfect man that He was. As an atonement for our sin. And God raised him from the dead on the third day. So that those who repent and believe will have the forgiveness of sin. The gift of the Holy Spirit and eternal life. But make no mistake friend. Make no mistake. If you do not hear Jesus. He will by no means clear the guilty. Moses intercession. Prayer brings us to the place of understanding the nature and character of God. Now, there's one other point to be made, and uh, that is Israel's repentance and restoration. Number three, Israel's repentance and restoration. Life and covenant with God. And I think this is very important. Because the word repentance is not used in the text. Uh, but I think the essence of repentance is demonstrated very clearly in the text. When Moses told the people that the Lord would not go with them in chapter 33, verse 4, look at their response. And the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornament. Now, why didn't they put on their ornaments? Because they were responding to the word that God had sent them through Moses. Say to this people, you are stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people stripped themselves their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. They didn't put them on again. Now, at this point, they have no idea. Is God going to take them back? But they're mourning over the absence of God in their midst. God will not go with us. He has cast us off. We are not His people. We don't belong to Him. I think a further indication of repentance is in that... Interlude text in chapter 33, verses 7 through 11, when Moses would pitch the tent and God would meet with him outside the camp. The glory presence of God would stand at the entrance. It's interesting. Moses is in the tent. God's outside. When you get to the tabernacle, Moses is outside and God's in the tent. They're going to switch places when they get to the camp. 
It was interesting what happens there. The glory cloud would come on the tent. And look in verse 9 of chapter 33. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Now there's something that's changed in the Israelites. There's a willingness to obey and an inability to be satisfied without the presence of God. I think maybe sometimes the reason sin gets so situated among the people of God is we just really don't care much about God's presence. I think repentance is perfectly stated in verse 9 of chapter 34 by Moses when he says, Lord, go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses just simply agrees with God. Here's God's assessment of my sin. Here's what God says it is. Now, Lord, would you pardon us? And would you take us for your inheritance and go with us? You see, repentance, like faith, is a conduit through which God's pardon for iniquity and transgression and sin flows into our hearts and transforms our lives. It's in repentance, listen, it's in a life of repentance that the power of sin is broken. The stain of sin is removed and the glory presence of God rests on us. You see, there'd never be a covenant renewal without repentance. God will have an obedient people. So Israel had something to learn about repentance and I think so do we. The scripture, or theologians, say that repentance and faith are inseparable graces. You can't long have one without the other. So it's not something so much you've done, these things characterize your lives. And so repentance characterizes the life of the believer, just like faith characterizes his life. This is what Luther said in the first of the 95 theses. When the Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called the entire lives of believers to be one of repentance. You see, by God's grace, he'll deal with our sin. He'll deal with the very act of sin itself, all the way to the root causes of the heart from where it arises. And this reality, knowing that God will deal with my sin, is not an indication that I ought to run from Him, but it's an indication I ought to run to Him. So here Moses is running to God, pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your people. And so I don't care what you've done, where you were last night, what has gripped your heart? What has gripped your life? God is calling you today to run to Him. 
That's what repentance is. Is it a turning? It's a turning toward God. It's I'm faced toward the living God because I know there in Him and only in Him is there freedom and power and forgiveness and help for my life. You see, when you're running to God, having God is your greatest desire and your greatest inheritance. And so today, we're, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And at the Lord's table, we're going to affirm that once again, our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we're turned toward Him. Hearts of repentance and faith are turned toward Christ who's merciful and kind. And so if you're a member of an evangelical church in good standing, we invite you to come to the table with us this morning. But uh, if you don't know Christ, then the first thing we need to do, first things first, is I want to beg of you to place your faith in Christ. He's the Son of God who lived a perfect life, died for your sin, was raised the third day, so that when you repent of your sins and place your faith in Him, He forgives your sin. He'll give you the gift of the Holy Spirit to indwell you, to give you strength and power in your life. And He'll take you as His people. And so if you haven't received Christ, then we want to ask you, just let the trays go by, not to embarrass you, but as one more time to press on you your need of Christ. If you receive Christ this morning, would you tell us? And then we want to implore you to be baptized, just like you saw this morning uh, with Campbell and Jewel and Justice. To proclaim your faith, uh, your faith in Christ alone. And so in a moment, we're going to uh, pass the juice and the crackers, the elements of the supper, and then we're going to take it all together in just a moment. But for now, if you'll bow your heads, the band's going to come, and we're going to uh, get the table ready.